and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. This week's guest has just returned home to Wigan from Africa, having completed the first leg of an extraordinary challenge. British adventurer Ollie France aims to become the first person to travel from the lowest to the highest point on each of the seven continents under his own steam. He cycled 1,636 miles from Djibouti, 160 metres below sea level, riding sometimes in temperatures as high as 45 degrees, to Tanzania, where he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, Africa's highest peak at almost 6,000 metres. The ultimate seven, as he's called it, has involved a decade of dreaming, five years of planning. It's a groundbreaking journey and it's all underway. Ollie is also an extreme guide and has led expeditions in some of the most remote, beautiful, dangerous, challenging places in the world, from Syria to Somalia to Uzbekistan. And he's a member of the Royal Geographical Society. Ollie, it's fantastic to see you today and to see you featured in this morning's Times. Have you <laughs> adapted back to life in Wigan? Well, thank you, Helen. Really appreciate the introduction and it's great to be on this episode with you. Have I adapted? Yes, but it takes a few days. And, you know, I think anybody who's traveled or who has been on these wild adventurous experiences will probably know that there is a certain decompression period after these experiences. And so I've got better at coping with it. And the way I would describe that is if you imagine a, a Formula One racing driver who's in this high octane race, and that's certainly what this expedition felt like at times. I needed 360 vision 24 seven, and then you're suddenly off the track and you're back in normal life and things aren't trying to kill you all the time. So there is a decompression there, but I'm happy to say I'm feeling very relaxed and feeling very present and I'm excited for the conversation. Good. And have you developed a few techniques? Because looking at your Instagram, Wigan and some of the places you've been in Africa, mm. it's such a contrast, isn't it? And you had to have at times thinking when you were perhaps traveling through Ethiopia, your wits about you. So how do you get back into normal life? Plus, you know, you're a dad and you've got two little children too. Yeah. So I've had to come up with strategies because it can be difficult transition period. And I just spent a month away in Africa. So the context for people, you know, it's a month long trip. I've got two young children, nine month old and a two and a half year old. And my wife, of course, and I've spent a month away from them. And so coming back, of course, really excited to see them. But I know that I need to almost create a bit of a stopgap. And so actually what I did before I saw any of my family, well, as I got home, I had about nine hours at home. I didn't listen to any music, put my phone in a drawer, quietly sorted my kit. And that was just my way of just sort of settling back down into normal life. You know, one of the great things I think about spending time away, and there may be listeners who this resonates with, is it really does make those times at home all the more valuable, all, all the more precious. So that gentle come down, appreciating the small things once again, really savoring every moment. That's what I try and do. That's what I try and focus on. And very glad to have a supportive family who support me through that process and understand what I need to do to just decompress. I guess nothing brings you back to earth as quickly as a, a nappy change, eh? Hey? <laughs> that is very true indeed. <laughs> Ollie, I'm dying to hear about the Ultimate Seven. Tell me about the project and exactly what it involves. The Ultimate Seven project was an idea I had around 10 years ago now. And I've always been on the hunt for the world's most breathtaking, the world's most spectacular places, places which are not seen very often, 
not traveled to too frequently. And I think, you know, that's really what I've spent most of my adult life pursuing. So this idea was right at the limit of what I thought was possible. And the project, just to go into detail on that, is to go from the lowest point in each continent to the highest in all seven continents. So it's a string of seven separate expeditions. And I really believe that it is on the limits of what's physically, logistically possible. And I know that to complete it will require precise planning, logistical support, immense physical hardship for sure, mental strength. But I think in life, you know, whatever you do, whatever you dedicate your life to, you want to be good at it. And I've certainly dedicated my life to adventure and I could think of no greater, no bolder challenge than this. And actually, I had a funny moment of realization around uh, last year. I was guiding a team in Syria. And of course, Syria has just experienced 10 years of civil war. We were wandering through Aleppo, there's destroyed buildings. People told us that we were the first tourists they'd seen there in a decade. So, you know, people are not going there. It's really on the edge of what's possible. And yet I had this strange moment traveling through Syria where I just thought, this all feels too comfortable. I felt more at ease, strangely enough, in Syria than I would in normal life back home with the stresses and strains of normality, I suppose. And so I thought, I've dedicated my life to doing this. I want to take things up a level. And this seemed like the right thing to do. So really knuckled down on the planning and got to the point where I thought, okay, I'm ready to take this challenge on. It sounds absolutely incredible. And the Africa leg of your journey would make a whole podcast in itself. I've been captivated by your posts out there. You're a real storyteller and every day had many, many stories to tell. Sum up what was the plan with Africa? So Africa, lowest point is Lac Asal in Djibouti. So Djibouti is a little country just by the Red Sea, just north of Ethiopia. And the highest point is Kilimanjaro, quite a well-known mountain in northern Tanzania. So to get from A to B, that would involve a 1,600-mile cycle through Djibouti, all the way through Ethiopia, all the way through Kenya, down into Tanzania. And to just put in context what that distance is like, because Africa is far, far bigger than most people think. It's a vast continent, and that's only a section of it. The distance I cycled was more than the distance from London to Moscow. So it's a really sizable chunk of Africa. And my plan was to go from the lowest point by bike all the way as far as I could up the base of Kilimanjaro and continue from that point on foot to the summit of the mountain. That was the bones of the plan <laughs> in, its, the in its very simplest the... form, yeah. We experienced some hostility in Ethiopia. I think that would look like there were some quite scary moments. Tell us about the Ethiopian leg. I did. And Ethiopia is a country I've traveled to before. So I was aware of the problems that I may face. So to put it in context, the first time I traveled to Ethiopia, I'd had a, a group full of travelers. We were on a bus. We were surrounded by 200 armed people, an angry mob, essentially, and had to negotiate our way out of that one. The second time I was in Ethiopia, again, found myself negotiating with a, a Kalashnikov-wielding tribesman in northern Ethiopia. So there was some history there. And a few people have asked me this. It's an amazing, diverse, but very tribal country. It really is very tribal. And across the country, you've got maybe 90 different languages. There is a lot of political instability. Even as I was entering Ethiopia on day one, there was a state of emergency declared in a big region in Ethiopia. So every day I'm seeing troops being shuttled around in cars. And so I think to travel there, 
And interesting as well, historically, Ethiopia was the only African country which was never colonized. So part of the theory is that it is because of its dense mountainous terrain, the very tough tribal fighters and things like that, that even the Europeans at the height of their might could never capture and retain this land. And I think you still see that that sort of fiery nature in some of the locals. And so to come to my expedition, that that is what I experienced at times. There were days when I would be cycling along for, you know, maybe averaging 100 miles or more some days in Ethiopia. And I would have people throwing rocks at me. I even had somebody throw a knife at me, had people chasing me with sticks on motorbikes, various police shakedowns. And so it is a very intense place to travel through. The way I would describe it, and and I didn't see any other foreigners in my whole journey through Ethiopia, the way I would describe it is if you're running a marathon, imagine running a marathon on your own, but half of the thousands of people who are watching you are hurling insults or throwing stones. It is quite an intense thing to experience. But, you know, that said, I did have lots of amazing interactions. And and there was a certain turning point where a few days in, quite fed up of all this hostility and stone throwing. And I thought, let's see if I can do something about it. And so I, I set about Operation Peacekeeper, where everybody who was shouting things at me, I would shout, hello, hi, or, you know, in, in the local language, and I'd really try and interact. And actually, I think things started to change from there. And for me, that was a bit of a reminder that what you put out into the world so often is what you get back. So I tried my very best. But yeah, it was it was an ordeal at times, for sure. Uh, I think the first 50 miles when you left Metahara sounded a bit crazy. I think you said on Instagram, the roadside was mm. a graveyard of twisted metal and debris. Do you feel quite vulnerable? Because there you are basically just on a bike. Do you worry about the risk? How do you tackle that? I will say across any of my expeditions, road travel is probably one of the biggest risks of all in any travel. And this is, you know, speaking from having traveled to Iraq and Syria and various places like this, road travel is where many of the dangers lie. And so that stretch in particular, yeah, that was just absolutely chaotic. So you've got these trucks, some of them are sort of double length, which are zooming along 60 miles an hour on the roadside. You've got lots of bent and buckled trucks. You've got roadkill, you've got potholes. I don't think they'd have MOTs or, <laughs> or similar in Ethiopia. And so when you're not cycling through potholes and things, it's exhaust fumes, it's dust clouds, crazy overtakes. Actually, through that section of Ethiopia, I did have a support driver for the simple reason of trying to protect me on the roads. He was essentially driving behind me and it really felt like a dogfight. So, you know, when you see these two jets in the air dogfighting sometimes, that's what it felt like. We had to dogfight against all of these trucks just to try and stay safe. I did come off my bike once. I hit a pothole, tumbled into a few rocks, but just got away without the scrapes. But being on the roads, that is a big risk. And so I really had to try and take every precaution I could. Probably the fact that I was, you know, six foot blonde head, white person on a bright red bike helped a little bit. But yeah, I still had to be very, very careful. It probably helped that your bike was Maasai red, wasn't it? I've met some of the Maasai warriors. And actually, it struck me when I first saw your bike. I wondered if you'd come across any of the Maasai and whether they would particularly feel that they liked the look of the bike. Well, there is a story there, actually. And once I got down into Kenya, and southern Kenya is sort of where you start to bump into the Maasai tribes people. 
amazing, friendly tribes people who've lived off the land since the start of time, had some amazing interactions there. And there was a certain section where I was really genuinely concerned because I was cycling through lion country effectively. There's big signs everywhere saying animals crossing, elephants, buffaloes, lions, and very, very sparsely populated. And I've made the mistake one night of sitting up in bed at night, reading about what to do in the event of a lion attack. That was a terrible idea because the entire next day, that's all I could think about. And it turns out there's very little you can do at all. But the one thing I thought I had on my side was these amazing local Maasai tribes people had said, you're in luck. You've got the color red on your bike, on your big pannier bags. The animals here have grown to fear that color due to our presence here. So we think you'll be safe. So that was my <laughs> that was my safety strategy. Yeah, you should say that you thought about that when you were in Wigan before you went. <laughs> I know, I know. I Actually, should. that's such a good learning. There was a funny <laughs> quote. I think you put all you can eat meal on wheels when you yeah. were traveling through the lions. I've never been to Africa until last year and I went to Kenya and oh, was out. I didn't run it, but I was out podcasting around the Lewa Marathon. Yes. And that's incredible. <laughs> you watch the runners, you know, not only are they dealing with the altitude and the heat, but also we're in a conservancy where you never know who you're going to meet That's on that true. path. Uh, you met some interesting rappers in Kenya. That made for some good footage. <laughs> yes, yes. Jamala Squad, as they are known. Feel free to go and browse for them on YouTube. So many great interactions, but they definitely stood out. One day, you know, stopped on the roadside, southern Kenya, getting myself some water. They pulled up and it's this great big motorbike they had decorated in sort of reggae colors and they had their own music blasting matching outfits matching jackets matching hair and they could not have been friendlier they were you know maybe under the influence of certain homegrown substances but they were very very funny i happened to support manchester united which is just down the road from where i am here so we had some laughs about that but yeah another great encounter there and i got some great footage what would you say was your favorite part of part one of your challenge and what was your least favorite part mm, favorite part Really, this cycle had weighed heavily on my mind in terms of the risks I knew I'd be taking, spending a lot of time on the roads. So as I finally got into Tanzania, and I've been to Tanzania a few times, it was familiar territory. I've made some friends out there, some amazing local friends. Just that final ride, the final push was around a thousand meter climb, the steepest roads of all. But I was traveling through small village, banana plantations, and working my way up this hill slowly, slowly, but just getting great interactions from people. And there was just this wave of relief and excitement that the ride was finally over. And that to me just felt like a huge success because there'd been many moments where I'd wondered if this is safe, if it's possible, if it's going to be too hot, too dangerous, all the rest of it, but I'd finally made it. And so that was a real rush. To go to the toughest part or the worst part, you know, it's probably way back on day one. I was really dropped straight into the furnace in Djibouti. It's one of the hottest places in Africa, 45 degrees Celsius. And so it really is hard to regulate your body temperature in those temperatures. You're, of course, starting at the lowest point in Africa, going immediately uphill and uphill all day, again into these dust clouds, into exhaust fumes, in these just wickedly hot temperatures. Of course, human body temperature is around 37 degrees. So cycling in 45 degrees to actually regulate your body temperature is really, really difficult. So I had liter upon liter of water, <laughs> pouring the water over myself, trying to cool down. I 
really did risk heat exhaustion that day. So that was a mental battle. And of course, I heard in my mind that there's still 1,600 miles to go. So mentally, that was tough. It clearly is a huge physical challenge, but I think in a way one can train for a physical challenge and it made me laugh. I saw on your Instagram, I have been kind of stalking you, Ollie. <laughs> when you were training, what should I do tomorrow? Hilly marathon or 500 pull-ups? Yeah. <laughs> and that puts me to shame when I think of what I yeah. did in the gym this morning. So, but physically we can train, can't we? We know if we're going to mm. do a big physical challenge, you have to put the work in. But I always get more fascinated by the mental resilience that you need and how have you built up that mental resilience to be able to cope with all of this kind of thing? That is the biggest piece for me, for sure. You're right. I think physical fitness, you've got to be at a certain level in order to take on a challenge like this. But And I think there are many, many people out there who could go and do this. But I think the mental side is actually a much bigger part of the picture. Because every single day you're dealing with uncertainty, you literally never know what's around the next corner, particularly in Ethiopia. And so it's dealing with those levels of risks, those dangers. For me, I think because I've been doing this for many years now, it's not unfamiliar territory. And one thing I try and do, you know, to bring it back to sort of everyday life and ordinary level is I try to expose myself to uncomfortable situations every single day, whether that is a run or a cold shower or a cold bath or, you know, getting out on my bike or doing a hard workout. And so every day trying to just build those little stresses. But when I am on expeditions going through, you know, multiple, multiple days or multiple weeks of hardship, then... I really try to just focus on the here and now, on the immediate challenge, on the immediate task ahead to break it down as much as possible. So for instance, on day one, into the furnace, I could not think about what was lying ahead really. I just could not afford to mentally go there really. I had to focus on, okay, where's the next village? Where's the next place I can get water from? How am I going to recover tonight in order to get up the next day and really taking it one step at a time? I often liken it or this idea of resilience to almost the weather itself, where there are going to be days when it's rainy or there's thunderstorms or sometimes it's bright and sunny. These things are happening. We can't always control it. And it's the very same in our minds as well. These thoughts are going to come into our minds that we cannot always can control. But we do know or we can remind ourselves things are going to get better somewhere down the line. And that is always what I try and cling on to. And invariably they do. It's interesting what you say about discomfort. I suppose I've learned in the last few years, there's value in discomfort, isn't there? You just mentioned the cold water and things like that. And I recently tried the whole Wim Hof for a podcast, the Wim Hof ice bath, etc. And there is value in that, I think. I really believe so. And I do think in modern life, this idea of discomfort is very much being stripped away from our lives right now. You know, you think about, the average person in the Western world, they've got perfectly easy house, comfortable beds. They can go into the pre-air-conditioned car to their nice warm office with their ergonomic office chair all through the day, eat whatever they want, whenever they want. And so all through the day is comfortable. You know, it really is comfortable. And But the, the human race has not got where it is without huge degrees of discomfort and knowing how to deal with uncomfortable and difficult situations. And, you know, right now we're, we're living in a good, you know, relatively peaceful time and very grateful for that and I hope it continues. But who's to say what's to happen in the future? I think to have that bank of resilience or just a familiarity with how we deal with uncomfortable situations is a useful skill for everybody to kind of work on. 
I think it's hermetic stress, isn't it? She says, trying to remember things from the the Wim Warrior we featured. But we seem to as well have moved so far away from nature and so far from what we were originally designed for. She talked about, you know, our homes are heated and, and I think it does us good to be back in nature and out in the big wide world and facing challenges. At the end, I'm kind of ashamed to say that I turned down a chance to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and I know mm-hmm. you've done it a few times. Did that almost feel like the familiar, beautiful bit at the end where you probably felt really safe and at home in a way to end this challenge? It did. And for me, the greater challenge was always going to be the cycle. I did know stepping foot on Kilimanjaro, the mountains are no place to take your foot off the gas or or feel completely rested. You never know what could happen in a mountain environment. But yes, I've climbed the mountain a few times now. I developed some great friendships. I was actually, I combined it with guiding a team up there. And so we had our local team supporting us who, who I've worked with before. And you may have seen from some of the videos, just the atmosphere that they helped to create on the mountain. There's lots of singing, dancing. So it really feels like a week long celebration. And of course, walking across these amazing landscapes every day through jungles, up through high mountain environments, totally unique to that part of Africa, way up to these majestic sunrises and glaciers on the summit. That experience never, never gets old, especially when you're sharing it with lovely, great people. So it did. It felt like a really fitting way to finish this challenge. That said, I know things are going to get harder. And of course, you know, as challenging as Africa was at times, it may prove to be the easiest of the the Ultimate Seven projects. Really? Well, I'm going to, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to take me around the world and we could zip around the continents to find out what are the highlights and the biggest challenges in each one and when you're going, etc. But I don't want to forget to ask, so I think I'll ask it now, mm. is where has this wonderful, adventuresome spirit come from? <laughs> you know, I could look back at my childhood, growing up in working class northern town of Wigan, The idea of adventure wasn't even in my mind, in my consciousness whatsoever. But if I think about my childhood, it was completely woven with elements of adventure. I just didn't know about it. So I would spend all of my time outside fields and forests, play with friends. And as I got older, you know, we'd go into the forest, we'd build little shelters. And, you know, I was that child in the classroom who would spend the entire lesson staring outside because that's where I wanted to be. But if somebody had said to me that that could potentially be a career, I would never have believed them. It was only as I got older that this sort of entered my mind as a, as a remote possibility. And so I think it is there in me. And I think on a, on a slightly broader sense, I think it is there in us all. I really do believe that it is the human will to explore that separates us from all of the species on Earth. I think that is the reason why we have explored the continents uh, from the Arctic to the deserts, explored space, the deep ocean. It is that innate human desire to explore, which allowed humans to populate the entire globe. And so I really think it is an innate part of what makes us human. So how did we go from childhood adventures? Your childhood sounded similar to mine. I remember waving goodbye to mum in the morning and She'd say, make sure you're back for five for tea and we'd be out in the fields and (laughs) making tree houses and dens and all kinds of things. But how did you go from that to the kind of, you know, they are quite extreme adventures. I love adventuring, but I've never done, I've been to Borneo, I've 
climbed Mount Tupacal a couple of times, but that's kind of as far as it's gotten. It's all been very safe and small and challenging for me in my own way. But how did you go to the much more extreme stuff? And is this to do with Wild Edge, your company? I suppose it was quite progressive, various progressive steps. So to fast forward from my childhood, age 17, went on a climbing weekend with friends, had never done it before, completely addictive from the start. And on that weekend alone, I signed up to a three-year outdoor leadership degree course. (laughs) And, uh, you know, then I'm suddenly surrounded for the next three years with amazing instructors, with like-minded people. I'm being encouraged to travel. So age 19, I was trekking in Morocco on my own with, you know, living in local huts. I was working in America. Age 20, I spent the month in Beirut, in Lebanon, living with a local family, learned a bit of Arabic. Following year, I was in Africa for a month, volunteering at a school. And every year, you know, I'd find myself making plans and I was sort of gradually just waiting for summer to come around. And that's when the adventure would happen. And then, of course, when I was finished with the university and managed to get through that, got the certificate, job done. And now it's like, okay, bring on the world. And there was this real excitement. And so went off for a year overseas and I just couldn't get enough of it. You know, I'd grown up with this world map on my wall next to my bedroom, learnt all about the world and the different countries and capitals and geographies and jungles, and was just so desperate to see as much of it as I possibly can. And I have a very real sense of we only get to do this once, you know, this thing we call life. So why not make the most of it? And I've got to say, you know, a decade on of doing this, a decade or more now, that sort of wanderlust still very much lives on right in my blood. That's fantastic. So tell us, where and when is part two? So part two will be in the winter of of this year. So in January to February, we'll be heading out to South America for the South America leg. Despite having traveled to about 75 countries now, a lot of that has been in Asia and Africa. So I've never set foot in South America once. So just on that level, yeah. So just on that level, it is. (laughs) On that level, I'm very excited about it. So it's in Argentina, to give the context there. Lowest point and the highest, both in Argentina. Logistically, a little more straightforward. The cycle is around 1,300 miles from the lowest point, using a similar strategy for South America. And then the climb, it is a more serious, higher mountain. So it's around 1,100 meters higher than, than Kilimanjaro. So is it? it? Stands, oh yeah, about, about 6,900 meters So it's actually the highest mountain anywhere in the world outside of Asia. So that's a longer, tougher mountain for sure, where you're really into high altitude territory and need to be careful with acclimatizing. And you're going to be exposed to extreme winds, extreme temperatures. So I'll need to be prepared for that as well. And for the climb, Ollie, will you be alone or do you take guides when you do the mountain aspect of the challenge? For the climb, I will likely work with local teams, so local support teams. They will be able to assist with logistics in sort of transporting kit up the mountain. So the done method in South America is to use mules, much like in Morocco, pack horses who who help you to transport your kit, but only up to a certain point. And from then on, you know, you're carrying all your gear. And so you've got to be ready for heavy loads, potentially 20 kilograms plus on your back up the final reaches of the mountain. I always do like to use local guides, use local support. It's another way of supporting local economies as well. It just struck me when you said that. How do you manage for food when you're on these trips? Because in Africa, there's only so much you can carry. Mm. And I would imagine you're burning so many calories a day that probably your appetite's quite big, is it, when you're doing all of this? 
Yeah, absolutely. In fact, in Africa, I couldn't consume enough food. You know, I lost quite a bit of weight as a consequence because I'm probably burning between five and 6,000 calories a day, if not more. The food you can get is relatively basic. So in lots of places, so, you know, my diet was mainly pasta, rice and beans and a bit of fruit and veg here and there when I passed a roadside stall. So that was it really. I just ate whatever I could, whenever I could, but it was still nowhere near enough. One thing was all of the fruit is amazing out there. So the best avocados, the best mangoes, the best bananas, best pineapples. So I realized, in fact, that all the stuff we must import here must be (laughs) what they don't want over there. So that was my main form of sustenance. Yeah. And so really, you can't really plan the food, presumably, because you can't carry that kind of quantity. So are you relying on route, there being places that you can stop and, and refuel, if you like? Yeah, absolutely. So it's taking it day by day, hour by hour. I can only carry so much. When you see a place selling food, then got to stop, got to top up while you can, because you never know when the next place is. No, and water too. I guess you've got to stay hydrated when you're in temperatures up to 45 degrees and you're burning all those calories. It gets a bit trickier in North America, doesn't it? Which is the third Mm. section of the seven. Yes. So North America is where things really do get more serious. The low point is Death Valley, Southern California, and the high point is Denali, way up in Alaska. So that's a difference of about 3,300 miles. It's a long ride way up through the western part of America, up through Canada, and way up into the Yukon territories, across into Alaska, and then to this big mountain, which of course is being up in Alaska, not far from the Arctic Circle. You've got blisteringly cold winds, you've got big glaciers to traverse over. And the other issue is most people, 99 if not 100% of people climbing Denali, fly into the base camp, which skips seven to 10 days of really hard trekking. Doing it human powered, I will need to do all of that on foot. So crossing rivers, bushwhacking, climbing up rock faces in order to just get to the base camp to then do the three week trek. So yeah, North America is going to be a big one. Wow. And reading your piece in today's times, I think you said in there that Denali is probably even more challenging than Everest, which you'll face in Asia. Try and describe for somebody who's only been to Tupcal, which was a little bit like a stroll in the Atlas Mountains. It didn't feel like it, but next to the stuff you Mm. do, what will Denali be like once you got to that base camp? What will those three weeks be like when you're trying to get to the summit? As I understand it, and I've done a lot of research, I've spoken to people who've been there, I've watched a lot of videos, you know, once you're up there on the mountain, Due to this location, its geographical location, you can get these freezing winds which come in off the North Pacific. And so often, you know, you may spend days at a time hunkered down in your tent, building great big snow shelters on the outside of your tent to break up the wind. When the weather is better, then you've got to be careful of avalanche risks with all this fresh snowfall. So it's navigating your way carefully up the mountain. Being very, very careful about what you're wearing. So any exposed skin, exposed fingertips in those temperatures, you can very, very easily get frostbite. So it's staying insulated, staying hydrated, staying well fed. And then, of course, you've got to deal with the altitude. And this is over 6,000 meters. So it's a pretty serious mountain in terms of its altitude. So, of course, you've got to deal with the stresses and strains of reduced oxygen, carrying much heavier loads. And there are parts on Denali where you're not only carrying a very heavy load, which might be 20 to 30 kilograms on your back, you're also dragging a sled, which might be another 20 to 30 kilograms. 
And that's the nature of the remoteness and inaccessibility of this mountain. Once you're out there with all your kit, with enough food to sort of last you for three weeks, that is it. There's no sort of resupplies. Everything you can carry is what you've got. And so you need to be self-sufficient, but that means a lot of weight, a lot of hard work, and really dealing with those elements day after day. Before we go on to continent four, it just really begs the question, what does Emma, your wife, think mm-hmm. of it? And you said your little ones are very young. She must be an amazing person. I think she's a primary school teacher. Um, yeah. Does she worry about you being out there? And it just sounds like you must be an amazing team. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she's very supportive. But how does she square it away with knowing environments you will be in? Because, mm. you know, just in that answer there, you talked about frostbite, avalanches. Does she worry? I'm sure there are moments where she worries. Because I've been doing this for so long now, you know, most of my adult life, and so often we'll be going to 12 to 15 countries a year, and it'd be Iraq and then Somalia and then Iran and then Congo. I think she really understands my decision making. And I'm very proud to have kept myself safe. You know, for sure, there's been lots of crazy incidents over the years, but you know, no injuries. And so I think I've developed good strategies when it comes to managing risk. And she understands the work that I put in. She sees it firsthand. And often we bounce ideas back and forth. And so, you know, certain expeditions I'd be planning, I I go so granular in the details of, of my risk mitigation. You know, she might throw a scenario out there and I've got to try and tell her what I'm going to do in that situation. And if I'm struggling, she's going to sense it and then she may worry. But we get to a such a point that she understands the level of planning there. And yeah, she believes in me. She trusts in me. And we do, I feel, make a good team. And then I think when you zoom out a little bit and take a bird's eye view at why am I doing this? I've got these two young children. People may think, okay, maybe it's reckless. Maybe it's selfish. But I've been in the corporate world for a short period of time. I've been miserable. I've not been fulfilled. And frankly, I was a different person entirely. I think these experiences are what, for me, makes me a better person and hopefully a better father, a better husband. And so that is what I'm aiming to do. You know, maybe it's a strange way of going about it, but it's my way. It seems to be working so far. So I don't think it's strange at all. I think (laughs) it probably makes you much richer as a human being. And Mm. there's a massive part of me that would love to be out there doing exactly the same thing. I still will always adventure, but perhaps not. I don't think I'll ever be a member of the Royal Geographical Society. I get excited when I see that membership on people's names. I think that's such an honour and Mm. fabulous thing to do. So we're up to continent four. Where are we going for the fourth continent? So four has got a slight asterisk against it because it is in Europe, although it is in Russia. So it's in the Russian half half of Europe. So politically right now, you know, there's some question marks there about going there and being safe. So although if it wasn't for the political side, the expedition is relatively straightforward. So the low point and the high point are both in Russia. Low point is Caspian Sea. 500 miles from there is Mount Elbrus, which is just north of Georgia, Caspian mountain range. Great big dormant volcano, 5,600 meters. It is a big glaciated peak, big snowy peak, but it's usually usually a seven-day trek. So that should be straightforward, but there's just a bit of a question mark as to when it's going to be viable to go and do that one. Yeah, it makes complete sense, doesn't it? Now, in my head, I'm thinking there's Asia left and Antarctica. Mm. <laughs> I'm still missing one. So what comes Oceana, after hope? Yeah. Oceania. <laughs> So is Oceana, that sort of Australasia. Australia and that kind of area? Yes, that is. And that is actually where things get really interesting because the low point and the high point are on two completely different landmasses. 
So that's going to involve a bit of water action to get from A to B. So the low point is in Lake Eyre, which is in South Australia. And then essentially, it will involve a 2,000 mile cycle right across the middle of the Australian outback up to Northern Australia. And then the high point is a place called Punchak Jaya, big jungle surrounded mountain in West Papua. So that's part of Indonesia, directly north, but around 600 miles off the North Australian coast. So that will involve an ocean row. That is not something I've done before. But having done lots and lots of research and planning, I do believe it is possible. I'll of course, be doing more planning and training in order to make sure it's viable, but I do believe it's possible. And then it will involve a 150 mile jungle trek at the end of it. So that one is going to be very challenging, could prove to be the most logistically challenging of all seven expeditions. Gosh, then we've got two left. So where next? Yes. So after that, Asia. Uh, not necessarily in this order. We shall see on the order, but Asia is Dead Sea to Everest. So that really is a mammoth mission right across pretty much the length of Asia, starting in Dead Sea between Jordan and Israel, then going way across the Middle East through South Asia, Pakistan, India, and up to Nepal and the, the Himalayas there to, to, of course, finish with Everest. The, you know, everybody needs Everest, uh, knows Everest. It does, needs no introduction. But of course, this will be a rather unique take on, a, on an Everest climb. How uh, do you once... feel about the Everest climb? Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about the cycle. So I've spent a lot of time in Asia and the Middle East. I really have a passion, have a love for that region. I'm very excited about that section. I've also been to Nepal, but I want to do more there. I want to see more of the country. And when it comes to Everest itself, you know, I'll be using exactly the same systems of, of, of risk mitigation, of building the right contacts, of doing it in the right way in order to make it as safe as possible. And in terms of being out there, no matter what you think of Everest as an adventure lover, there's always that curiosity of this mountain. So it will be exciting just to be around, to step foot on the biggest mountain on earth. You know, there is wow. something innately exciting about that. I should connect you to the wonderful Sir Chris Bonington, who oh, was one of, well, I'll do that because he was one of our very first podcast guests and he's absolutely wonderful. And he I'm is. sure, I know it's many years ago since he, he did Everest, but I'm sure he might have some valuable insights for you. He's a wonderful, wonderful sure. character. So, so we'll do that. And of course it must be Antarctica um, left, which is a part of the world that fascinates me. Yes, the great white southern continent is the final one or one of the final ones. And that is, again, a very challenging expedition. So the lowest point is a place called Deep Lake, which is near a US station called McMurdo Station. And the highest point is Mount Vinson, which is about four and a half thousand meters high. A big, of course, snowy glaciated peak, extreme temperatures once again, minus 40s, very strong winds. And so it's going to be a long polar journey across the Antarctic continent just to reach that and then climb the mountain. So again, a very, very bold, logistically complex expedition. One I'm very, very excited about. We should also, I think, you need to meet Doug Allen, who is David yes. Attenborough's favourite cameraman and also one of our podcast guests. But he was based at McMurdo Station, I think I'm right in saying. But David Attenborough says you will not find anybody who knows as much about the both poles as Doug Allen, and wow. he's um, a charming, 
gentlemen. So I think we need to do that just to oh, yes. expand yes. your research a little yes. bit. And you've been to some gorgeous places, remote places. I think you did an 8,000 mile solo journey in winter from Hong Kong to Istanbul across the mountains mm. in Asia, a 400 mile solo crossing of a frozen lake in Siberia. When you sit back and you have a cup of tea and you just reflect a minute, Ollie, where would you say the most beautiful places and remote places that have really touched your heart are? To come to one, and I feel like, you know, that is kind of been my life's quest, is to find that exact place you're talking about, that kind of paradise. And one place in particular stands out, and it stands out for a couple of reasons. One is very, very hard to get to. It took years of persistently trying to get visas, trying to organize transport, trying to organize logistics, lots of turnbacks. And it is known as the Galapagos of the Indian Ocean. I know lots of very, very well-traveled people, you know, many of whom have traveled with me over the years. And for many of them, this place has always been at the top of their list. And it's called Socotra Island off the coast of Yemen. And it's a place very few people have heard about, actually. And I'm kind of glad because I see it as like the beach, you know, the film The Beach, where this secret sort of island that only a few people know about. And I almost feel guilty talking about it because that's how it feels. But it is this tropical island. It is completely away from the troubles on the mainland there. It's got these amazing, unique trees called dragon's blood trees. Never seen anything like that anywhere on earth. Incredible people. You've got fresh seafoods coming in off the ocean every day. You've got mountains and cliffs which have never been climbed. You have got reefs which have never been dived. One guy in particular living in a cave still who took us out fishing for sea urchins and stingrays and oysters. It is right on the the edge of where is possible to go. Still only a tiny number of people are going there, but what a place. Yeah, Amazing. That sounds incredible. What do you learn about yourself, Ollie, going to these places? Because I would imagine there are massive learnings doing the kind of adventuring that you're doing. I often say, actually, that you spend a lot of time traveling overseas and a lot of time and money invested in these trips sometimes. But sometimes you spend more time in your own head than you do where you are, especially on big solo challenges. And so you really are going through a full range of thoughts and emotions and you learn what's important to you. If you're going on a trip for the wrong reasons and you're going through a very, very hard time, you're going to want to be home. <laughs> you're not going to want to stay there. And so I think the fact that I've been through a lot of very difficult situations and I'm still going, it shows me that I'm, I'm doing the right thing with my life. One thing always leads to the next, you know, one expedition always leads to the next and you have conversations, you meet people, doors are opened. What you put out into the world is what you get back largely. I think in the minds of many people, the world is still a big, scary place. Certainly certain countries which have had negative media coverage over the years. But having been there, having spent months of my life there, if not years, and met so many people from all walks of life, you know, I really have this crystal clear idea that 99%, if not more, of humanity are good. People are willing to help you and I just find that completely joyous and think I'm sort of duty bound to tell the world that because it's not a message we hear often enough. For me, it's probably about the people. So yes, it's fantastic to go to places that are beautiful and remote and unspoilt. But everywhere I've been, it's been the people talking to locals, whether they be local guides or local families or communities. I think there's a simplicity to life in a lot of these countries. And when you embraced into 
that kind of community and people welcome you and cook for you and tell stories from their heritage. That's when it makes me feel that the life we lead in the normal world here in Britain feels so busy and crazy Mm. and loud. And I like the simplicity and the conversations. That's what's important to me, I think, on those. And I'm guessing people are important Mm. to you when you're on these trips. Completely. And and I would say that they are the most important thing now. It is the reason I travel more so than the, you know, the beautiful views and the landscapes and things. It is the people that is massively important to me. And, you know, to to mention what I do other than these adventures is running my uh, expedition company, Wild Edge. That is a huge reason I do what I do. It is getting to show people the world places that I love, places that I think are incredible, building deep human connections. And I think one of the magical things about expeditions is you get to know people very, very quickly and and very deeply. And and you form these amazing relationships, which so often become lifelong friendships. And so often you could get to know somebody more in a couple of days than maybe their colleague might know about them, who's worked with them for 10 years, because you've got this shared experience, you're going through shared hardships, you've got a common goal, a common vision. And that's a really powerful thing for bringing people together. And it doesn't matter the culture you come from. It doesn't even matter if you speak the same language. I've built bonds with people, you know, regardless of who they are, the background is. And and that is the power of adventure for me. Oh, completely agree with you. So let's just end on the question that we've asked everybody on this podcast season. And I'm guessing you're going to have quite a few things to choose from when I Mm. ask Ollie, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? I really almost want to flip that question on its head because The way I think about risk is almost the opposite of the way most people think about risk. And so the biggest risk in life, I think, so often is not taking the risk or not taking that leap of faith, not taking that step. And so, you know, I touched on it very briefly. I had this corporate job. I was deeply miserable. I was lounging around in bed, unrecognizable from the person I am today. I did take what people may think of as a risk. And I left it all behind, left the company car, the salary, the bonus scheme, all the comforts in order to seek out this life of adventure. But when I reflect on that decision, I think it would have been far riskier to not take that step and to stay in that life I hated. So it's maybe a backwards answer to your question. But for me, risk is misinterpreted often. And we, we don't think about the risk of inaction. That's what I'll leave you with. Fantastic. When I asked you to guest on the Convex Conversation, you said you were flattered because of all the inspirational people we've featured. People that I think you're aware of, like the round the world yachtswoman, Dika Fari, who was the first woman to sail solo the wrong way around the world, and adventurer Reza Pakravan and the Arctic swimmer and patron of the oceans, Lewis Pugh. You are every bit as up there for me. It's been a real treat to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank and you. I can definitely feel next mm-hmm. year a part two coming on as you get deeper into your challenge. So I wish you the best of luck with it. I think what you're doing is extraordinary. And I shall continue to follow on Instagram when you are able to send mm-hmm. posts from all these amazing places around the world. But thank you, Ollie. It's oh. been so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the kind words and appreciate the invitation. It's been lovely to have a conversation with you. So thank you. Great. And Doug Allen and Sir Chris Bonington. We need to do that, don't we? If you oh, feel yes. that, that I would, would love if that. you feel that they would add to your research and I'm sure they would. They're both people I admire, so that would be amazing. 
We'll sort that out. You have been listening to adventurer Ollie France, just back from the first part of his Ultimate 7 Challenge and now preparing for the second continent in January. Don't forget to download and subscribe to our podcast series at convex.podbean.com or you can search The Convex Conversation on Spotify and all the usual platforms. There are more than 140 episodes to choose from, so something for everyone. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week. Bye for now. Thank you.